If you brought your Bibles, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. So go ahead and open your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be in 10 through 18. In 1943, the Allies were looking to turn the tables in World War II. But things weren't going great. The United States had entered the war rather unwillingly a little more than a year prior, and the Allies needed a decisive victory. So British intelligence came up with this elaborate ruse, a plan. They called it Operation Mincemeat, where they wanted to deceive the Germans, the Axis powers, into fortifying the wrong front. They wanted to overtake Sicily. So in order to do that, they wanted to try to get the Axis powers to send all their troops, their defenses to Greece. So they came up with with this ruse. They uh, discovered a body. There's a man who deceased, probably named Glendor Michael, and he was a homeless man, didn't have any family. The body was left unclaimed. So they created this whole persona for this man. They called him Captain William Martin, which for the British is a rather unoriginal name, but that's fine. Um, And they made him, uh, made whole life for him. They found him a girlfriend, put pictures in his pockets. They uh, got a deposit slip from the bank, an even overdraft letter. They got letters from his fake parents, all of these things to make this corpse look like a real person. They dressed him up as a captain, and on his person, they included a fake letter. It was a real letter, but the contents were fake. It was from General, Lieutenant General Archibald Nye, and it included some personal details to another general, but it also included this plan to attack Greece. So their goal was to drop the body off in the water off the coast of Spain. Spain was neutral. They knew Spain would search the body, find the intelligence, and sell it to the Germans. And on April 30th, the plan worked without a hitch. They dropped the body off into the ocean. Some Spanish fishermen discovered the body of this captain. They found the intelligence. The Spaniards sold it to the Germans, and Hitler fell for it. They moved their fortifications in Sicily to Greece. And on June 9th, in Operation Husky, the Allies overtook Sicily, and six weeks later it fell. Months later, the Italians surrendered, and the tide of the war began to turn. But it was a plan of master deception, wasn't it? The Allies convinced the Axis powers to fortify the wrong front. They believed a lie. I wonder how often our spiritual enemy does the same thing. Convincing us to fight the wrong battle on the wrong front by feeding us lies. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Satan is called the deceiver. He's called the father of lies. He speaks the language of lie like you and I speak the language of English. It's in his nature. So we would expect one of his deceptive schemes uh, to be working uh, in us to fight the wrong battle. And if the effects were that detrimental for the Axis powers, what would happen if you and I fight the wrong spiritual battle in the wrong location? What would happen if we shore up the wrong line of defense? We're not going to win our spiritual battle. Think of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, where he says this in chapter 2. Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Don't miss this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. 
Isn't that a chilling verse? That we might not be outwitted by Satan so that we're not ignorant of his schemes. I'm convinced that the church today is largely ignorant of Satan's schemes. Spiritual warfare, it's scary. It's intimidating. So we prefer sometimes to walk through a minefield with an eye mask on, just hoping that we don't take the wrong step. But ignorance does not change the reality of our spiritual war. Last I checked, the best sports teams in the world study hours of film on their opponent. The best military powers in the world know how to predict the next move of their enemy. In our spiritual war, we can't stick our head in the sand because whether you like it or not, we're in the midst of a spiritual war. And either we can put on God's armor and we can fight, or we can just pretend like the war doesn't exist and lose the battle. And this isn't a solo fight. This is one we get to do together. So as Paul finishes his letter to the church at Ephesus, follow along with me, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's pause there. I love that this is how Paul finishes the letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, guys, it's time to go to war together. He reminds them of the spiritual battle that they're facing. But I promise the reality of the spiritual war in Ephesus was anything but foreign. They knew the reality of their spiritual war. Remember Ephesus. This was Satan's playground. It was Satan's backyard. There was the evil Artemis cult that was the economic driver of the city of Ephesus, where people would come from all around the region to worship this false god Artemis. They would even come to the temple, and as part of their worship, they would perform sex acts with cult temple prostitutes. Horrendous evil. That was the background for many of these converts in the church at Ephesus. And Paul tells us in another one of his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that when, when sacrifices are offered to these false gods— these people are actually worshiping the demonic. That was the driver behind the Artemis cult, the demonic. That's the background for this church. And then there were sorcerers. Ephesus was a capital of sorcery. That when the revival swept through Ephesus, Paul, uh, the Luke, that's the guy who wrote Acts, in Acts chapter 17 or 18, he records that when these sorcerers, these astrologers, when they got saved, they burned all of their books in this holy bonfire probably $7 million in today's money of sorcery textbooks that they didn't sell, that they burned. Demonic worship, Artemis worship, sorcery. That was the background for the church. They knew the reality of the war that they were facing. They knew their spiritual enemy. So Paul writes, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That word wrestle is not the word that you and I would expect. It's a precise word in the Greek. It talks about a, a soldier wearing full armor, who is engaged in, in hand-to-hand -hand cunning sort of a combat. We have a, a spiritual enemy who we fight in close quarters with. He's cunning. He's sneaky. And we fight that battle 
sometimes very close. And then Paul says, rulers and authorities in the next verse, those refer to spiritual leaders who aren't human. Then he says, the powers of this dark world. Those are magical or even astrological words used in those traditions to describe pagan deities, to describe false gods. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, those are wicked spiritual beings. What Paul's doing is he's piling title after title after title on each other so that we understand what he's talking about. Our primary enemy is not of this world. Our primary enemy, our primary foe is our spiritual enemy, the devil. So then Paul in verse 13 writes this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done everything, having done all to stand firm. And then verse 14 starts, stand therefore. (laughs) Paul's repetitive in that verse, isn't he? He says, stand, stand firm, stand therefore. Gives us this picture of being on the defensive, not on the offensive. A couple weeks ago, a group of us went up to a local camp. I took our Mexico team. We did a training retreat overnight, and we just had an awesome time. And you would expect that my highlight of this training retreat, preparing to serve these missionary kids in Mexico, you'd expect my highlight would be something spiritual, right? Well, you think higher of me than you should. My highlight was laser tag. And we had a blast. They turned the entire dining hall upstairs, downstairs into this giant laser tag facility. And we had four teams and we were rotating through and like two hours went by like that. We had so much fun. But we noticed something interesting. The way they designed the game was that there was always a team that went into the dining hall to hide. And then the other team would come in and and try to find them and mark them and, and end the game. There was a team that was always on the defense. There was a team that was always on the offense. Every time we played except one, the team on defense won. In terms of a battle strategy, the team that's holding ground always has the advantage to the team that's taking ground. Did you notice the language that Paul uses? He says, stand firm. He's reminding us that our battle against our spiritual enemy is defensive, not offensive. Think of what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, that when Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again, those same rulers and authorities, he subjected them to open, to public shame, to public humiliation. The battle has already been won. We are standing on ground that has already been taken through the cross. And all we have to do is to defend the ground that's already been won. We're on the defense, not the offense. We hold the high ground. Yet you and I still live in this already not yet tension where we're still waiting for the day when our spiritual enemy, Satan, is defeated once and for all. But until then, the expectation for our battle plan is obvious. We stand firm and protect the ground that we've already been given through the cross and the empty tomb. Now, let me state the obvious. Satan cannot force anyone to sin. The desire to sin comes from inside of us. Now, Satan can capitalize on those desires, but he is never to blame for my sinful choices. He is not the only source of temptation. We struggle with the desires of the flesh, the desire to sin that comes from inside of us. We struggle with the desires of this world the allure of worldly things that comes from outside of us. You know what those are like this time of year. It's every advertisement you see on TV. 
unless I get that iPhone 31 for Christmas, I'm not going to be happy, right? Or it's every Hallmark Christmas rom-com that says, you know, unless you get a relationship that looks like that, you're not going to be happy this Christmas season. It's the desire of the world. But then there's a third sphere, our spiritual enemy. And that's the sphere that we're going to focus on tonight, because that's where Paul focuses his attention in our text, our spiritual war against our spiritual enemy. But where's the battlefield? As we're engaged in a spiritual war with our spiritual enemy, where is the primary battlefront? Well, I'm convinced that it's right here. It's in our mind. Certainly, there's other fronts that we might fight a spiritual battle, but the battle within our mind is the most important and maybe the least addressed. So that's where we're going to focus our attention tonight. As we look at the rest of the text, which is a famous passage called the armor of God. So here's a a brief path forward. For each piece of armor, I want to do three things. The first thing I want to do is make sure we're all on the same page and understanding what that armor would have looked like and been like for Paul's audience. Might be predictable for what you think it is. It might be something completely different. Even as I was reading and studying through this, I learned something about the armor that I'd never learned before. We'll get to that. Then the second thing I want to do is reverse the armor. By looking at the opposite of the armor, we can learn something about Satan's strategy. That'll make sense in just a moment. And then third, practically, how can we use that piece of armor in our spiritual fight? So that's where we're going. And first, look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Let's pause there. So we get to start with the belt of truth. For the Roman soldier, the belt held literally everything together. The belt just didn't hold up the soldier's pants. It literally held all of the armor, everything together. So to go to battle without your belt was to go to battle without your armor. Makes sense, doesn't it? Truth holds us together. So what happens if we flip the armor? What happens if we reverse it? What do we learn about Satan's schemes? Well, Satan attacks us with lies. He attacks us with deceit. It's not a surprise. He's the liar. He's the father of lies. He speaks the language of lie. But the lies that he tries to get us to believe, they're often theological in nature. They might sound like thoughts in our mind that are in second person. They're often condemning. They might sound like this. If God really loved you, your life would look different. You're fat. You're ugly. You're stupid. Your life isn't worth living. You should just end it all. Why do you even bother praying? God's not listening to you anyways. You're depressed because of this hidden, unknown sin in your life that you haven't even found out yet. You're a pervert. You can't be forgiven. You're a continual disappointment to God. You have so much potential and you've just wasted it. Those are painful and real arrows from the enemy. And if you're hearing those thoughts, and if you're believing those thoughts, there's a good chance that you're not winning your spiritual war. See, each one of these lies at the core attack the nature and character of God himself. And when we believe those lies, we fail to put on the belt of truth. We leave ourselves vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. So to put on the belt of truth, here's what we do. We need to verbalize and fix faulty theology. It's our first principle tonight. 
verbalize and fix faulty theology. We need to correct bad theology by spending consistent and daily time in Scripture. The more comfortable we are with God's Word, the more we can automatically correct the theological lies from the enemy. And if we're, we're thinking, if we're hearing those thoughts, we need to verbalize them. We need to talk about them with someone who has good theology, someone who you trust, someone who you can work together to correct those things with. It's okay to say something like, you know, I feel crazy for saying this, but this is a thought that's been running through my mind. Can you help me process this? Once we bring that thought into the open, it immediately loses some of its power. And you'll see the belt of truth get weaved through the other five pieces of armor. But next, we have the breastplate of righteousness. Look at the rest of verse 14. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, it was a common piece of armor in Paul's day. It was covered in brass. It was this plate that covered the heart and the essential organs. It's exactly probably what you're picturing. But the belt of, not the belt, the breastplate of righteousness. What's righteousness? Simple, right? It's holy living. It's living like Jesus. We protect our spiritual organs by living a holy life. But if we reverse the armor, what do we learn about Satan's tactic? The opposite of righteousness, I just gave you the answer, is unrighteousness. It's unholy living. If we tolerate habitual sin in our life, we leave ourselves open to attack. If there's unconfessed sin in our life, then we give the enemy closer access to that battleground in our mind. We've used the example of my heart, Christ's home, a number of times through this series. If you know Christ, Jesus is the owner of the house of your heart. He, sub, he leases it to you as the tenant. But through unconfessed, through unrepentant sin in our life, we can actually sublease that little two-by-four closet to the enemy, giving him very close access to heap those mental accusations, to heap those lies at us. So if you've been facing continual mental accusations from the enemy, one of the first questions I would ask is, are you living in a righteous way? Are you tolerating continual sin in your life? So to respond, number two, we have to clean out the closet. Clean out the closet. Certainly there's many different avenues that we could apply, but I want to think of, think of two. Two common ways the enemy might occupy a stronghold in the life of a young adult. One comes directly from Ephesians 4, and the other comes through years of conversations with you. Let me read Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Paul writes this, "'Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil.'" When we hold on to anger, which leads to bitterness, when we don't deal with it in a godly way, then we provide the devil an opportunity. That literally means a, a place. When we hold on to bitterness in our hearts, we give the enemy closer access. Bitterness is one of those examples of unrighteousness. And it's one of the most common struggles for a Christ follower. Not a single one of us are exempt from this temptation. And the battle tactic makes sense. When we harbor bitterness towards someone in the family, what happens? We don't want to be around them. We don't want to serve with them. We don't want to talk with them. Our own growth is stunted by our bitterness. And the enemy can sideline us when we hold on to bitterness. 
And if that's a struggle that's going on in your heart, that's something we have to work through individually with the Lord. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 4. There'll be a response element tonight for you to work through that as well. But another way that we can clean out the closet is this. I am convinced that the enemy has crippled a generation of Christ followers through habitual pornography and sexual sin. Consider the lies from the enemy. It's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. It's not hurting anyone. It's certainly not affecting you, so just go for it. You can clean up this part of your life later. Those are lies. But through habitual sin, the enemy is camping out in that little two-by-four closet, heaping mental accusations against you about your faith, about doubt, about salvation, about self-worth, about self-harm. Any sin, especially sexual sin, is not neutral, but the enemy is using it to neutralize you. If that's you, it's time to clean out the closet, and we'll have a confidential response element at the end of the night if you'd like to take that bold step. Well, next, look at verse 15. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is a tough word to dig into in the Greek. Translations translate this verse a lot of different ways because Paul doesn't use the words that we'd expect. But the verb that he uses even goes untranslated in the ESV. And Paul uses it to allude to a very specific type of armor that the Roman soldier would wear, their specific type of battle shoes. These were intense. The laces would go all the way up through the mid-calf, and if it was cold outside, they would even take wool, put it underneath the laces, and then tie the laces over the wool. But here's the part that, that counts. The bottom, the sole of this war sandal was sometimes two centimeters thick, solid leather. And it would be studded with these wide-headed nails all through the sole, like an intense version of a cleat. These weren't track shoes. These weren't for sprinting. These were for a firm foundation so that when the battle would come, their feet would be firmly planted. Many times I've heard this text preached, read about it, Many pastors or commentators think of the shoes of the gospel. You've got to run. You've got to tell people about Jesus. Is that true? Absolutely, that's true. But that's not what Paul has in mind in this text. Instead, it's the opposite. We use the gospel to stand firm. The gospel, the Greek word euangelion, it literally means good news. We could spend the next hour talking about the gospel. But here's my pass at a definition the good news that Jesus, the promised king, lived, died, and rose again in my place. That's the good news of the gospel. And for some of you tonight, that's new news. The gospel is the most important news in your life. The reality is all of us are sinful. Each one of us walked in the door with a major problem, and it's ourselves. Our own sin, our own rebellion separates us from a holy God. We've earned from our own behavior eternity separated from God in a literal lake of fire. That is the worst possible news. But God in his grace and his mercy sent Jesus, his son, fully God and fully man, who lived in our place, 
who died in our place, who rose from the dead in our place. Paul writes in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we get to have that relationship with Jesus. We get to know that our eternity is secure. If you walked in the door tonight and and you don't have that relationship with Christ, you haven't believed in him as your savior, don't leave tonight without knowing that you know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, I have some really good news for you. You're already wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace. If you've trusted in Christ as your savior, those shoes are on your feet. But the gospel is not just something that we believe one time. We believe the gospel every day for the rest of our life. And that's one of the great battle tactics that we can face, that we can use against the enemy. So we've got to preach the gospel in the mirror. And that's our next principle tonight. Number three, preach the gospel in the mirror. We use the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to fight back against the enemy. And it works like this. When the temptation to pride comes, we can say, I'm not king. Jesus, he's my king. I'm standing firm. Or when the enemy shoots the arrow that says, you've committed the sin of blasphemy, we can say, Jesus died to pay the price for my sin. I'm standing firm. My eternity is secure. Or when the enemy shoots the arrow that says, your life, it's not worth living, you can say, my king loved me so much that he died for me. He valued the price of my life with his own blood. My life is worth living. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Stay grounded on the truth of the good news that Jesus is your king, the one who died for you and rose on your behalf. And we are fighting against a conquered spiritual enemy. Preach in the mirror. Number four, we can look at the the shield of faith. Verse 16, Paul writes, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts, the arrows of the evil one. Paul's parallel here makes the most sense of all of the armor, in my opinion, with what we see for the, the Roman soldier. When you and I think of a shield, we think of Captain America's shield, the circle that he throws and does all these crazy things with, right? Erase that from your mind, because that's not the Roman shield. Instead, for the soldier, the Roman army, the shield was four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. It was concave. It was made of wood, outlined in metal, covered in leather. They would hook up, connect to the, uh, the shield next to them, creating this giant barricade. Well, why would you cover a shield in leather? It doesn't make sense. Well, let me explain. The enemies of Rome would fire flaming arrows at the soldiers. So they would take that shield covered in leather, they would dip the whole thing in water, and then they'd go to battle so they could extinguish the flaming arrows of their enemy. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like exactly what Paul wrote in the text. We do the same thing when we take up the shield of faith. Now, what happens if we reverse the armor? What's the opposite of the shield of faith? Well, it's fear, isn't it? It's running away from the enemy's arrows instead of standing firm. The opposite of the shield of faith is self-empowerment, is believing that I have the strength to fight the enemy. 
See, the entire point of faith is trusting that Jesus' power, not Sam's power, can extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. One of the incredible ironies in our battle against the enemy is this. Victory begins with surrender, not surrender to Satan, but surrender to Jesus. Our battle begins on our knees. We don't have the power, but he has the power. So that's number four, is press into Jesus' power. Press into Jesus' power. Over and over again, throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts, when the apostles would defeat the powers of the enemy, they would always use one simple phrase, in Jesus' name. Sound familiar? It's often how we finish and close our prayers. It's not a magic spell. It's, it's not a magic phrase. Instead, it's an appeal to the real source, the real authority of our power. Through Christ, we have the power to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. But often, we leave that power untapped because we're afraid to ask for help, or we think we can do it on our own. Consider how we might use the shield of faith practically. It sounds like this. I resist this temptation to fear in Jesus' name. For you, Father, have not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Or how about this? In the name of Jesus, I stand strong against this temptation to lust. For your will for me, Father, is that I run away from immorality. Or when we lose ground to the enemy and we lost a couple of battles, we can pray something like, Father, I confess that I've lost these specific battles. Forgive me. In the name of Jesus, I ask you to reclaim the ground that I've given to the enemy. I give that ground to your control. We put up the shield of faith when we understand the delegated authority that we've been given through Christ. Think of when Jesus sent out the 72 disciples to perform miracles to preach the gospel, and they came back to Jesus, and they were surprised that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. We should not be surprised like the 72. The name of Jesus today is just as powerful as it was 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 17. Paul writes this, take up the helmet of salvation. So that's the next piece of armor. It might be the most predictable. Every soldier has to go to battle with a helmet on, protects the most important part of their body. And if they go to battle without the helmet, it leaves their head vulnerable. So what happens when we reverse this piece of armor? We don't lose our salvation, but we forget our salvation. We doubt our salvation. One of the strongest and sneakiest tools of the enemy is to disable and disarm believers with spiritual doubt. That's number five. To put on the helmet of salvation, we have to deal with our doubt. Deal with your doubt. And the doubt, it might come in the form of mental accusations. They might sound like this. You just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now you're going to hell. You didn't actually repent. You're a worthless fake. Look at your life. How can you call yourself a Christian? You're a fraud. You've committed that sin one too many times. You lost your salvation. You missed your chance to become a Christian. The door's closed. Those are real arrows. They're real attacks from the enemy. In spiritual doubt, it's the most crippling when it remains silent. We need to let those thoughts into the open with a trusted friend, a trusted mentor to combat them with the gospel of peace With the arrows of doubt, we need to verbalize them. It's okay to say, I sound crazy for saying this, but this thought keeps running through my mind. 
Can you help me process it? And when we consider how to deal with doubt, we have to ask ourselves three questions. The first is, have I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And then the second, have I turned away from my old way of life and followed Jesus? It's an attitude, not an action. And then third, have I seen that gradual one step forward, two step forward, one step back sort of transformation in my life? If the answer to those three questions is yes, then you have no reason to doubt your salvation. Put on the helmet and don't leave your head unprotected. Stand firm in the confidence that comes from the gospel. Well, finally, one piece of armor left, the rest of verse 17. And Paul writes, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Often you'll hear somebody say, the sword, it's our only offensive weapon, which is true, it is. But it's not the type of sword that you're picturing. Instead, the sword in view here was about two and a half inches wide, but it was only about two, two and a half feet long. It was short. You're not going to charge through the enemy's line with this sword. Instead, this was a close combat, defensive sort of sword. And here, Paul identifies the sword as the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? The, the Word of God. Scripture. So what happens if we reverse the final piece of armor? What's Satan's battle strategy? He wants us to spend time with anything except this. And if I'm honest, he's pretty good at it, isn't he? You think of all the distractions in our life, from Netflix to work to family to friends to our hobbies, even to the Christmas season, everything can distract us and keep us away from here. But it makes sense, doesn't it? This is our weapon of mass destruction. And Satan wants to keep us away from, away from this. We can't let him win that battle. We need to strike back with the sword. That's number six. Strike back with the sword. I think one of the clearest examples has to be Matthew 4. Jesus had just fasted for 40 days. He was all alone in the wilderness in the Judean desert. And after those 40 days, that's when Satan comes and tempts Jesus. That temptation had to be more brutal than anything you and I have ever walked through. And Jesus, fully God, fully man, all the power in the world is available to him. And what tool, what weapon does he use to defeat the enemy? Scripture. Three times he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. You realize the same, the same weapon that Jesus used to defeat our spiritual enemy is the same weapon that you and I have to defeat the spiritual enemy. We have Scripture. But sometimes we don't know how to use it. So we need a quick lesson in using our sword. Question, can God read your thoughts, yes or no? Uh, no. Yes. yes, God can read your thoughts. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He sees all. That's why we can talk to God and pray even in our minds. We don't have to open our mouth. Question two, can Satan or his demons, can they read your thought? Have you ever thought about that before? They're not omniscient. I'm convinced they can't read your mind. They're probably pretty good at guessing. They can influence your mind, might be able to place thoughts in your mind, 
but can't read your mind. So if, if we're going to take out the sword of the Spirit and we're going to go to battle against the enemy, we can't just think it. We've got to say it. One of the best ways that we can go to war spiritually is to speak Scripture out loud, which is exactly what Jesus did. And it sounds like this. I resist this temptation toward lust in the name of Jesus. It's written, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. I will honor God with my body. I resist this temptation toward worry in Jesus' name because it's written, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I resist this temptation and guilt and shame in Jesus' name because it is written, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what happens when we strike back with the sword? James 4, 7 says that the enemy runs away, that he flees. That's a promise. Putting on the armor of God, it's not a magic prayer. It is a way that we continually live our life in, in constant battle readiness. Maybe I can finish with a, maybe a personal story. I'll mix a couple stories together so you won't be able to figure out what I'm talking about, though this happened not here. I've been to a number of different camps, and one year I was working with a group of high school guys as a camp counselor. And when I work as a camp counselor, I, I would always try to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with each person in my cabin. And there's one young man I'd wanted to talk to, but it was the last day of camp. And finally, we were able to sit down and have our one-on-one, -on -one and it took me all of about 15 seconds to realize I was in way over my head. He was dealing with something that he called intrusive thoughts. And as he explained, these violent thoughts, these unwanted thoughts, these compulsions to do things, he didn't, he didn't want them. He wasn't entertaining them. They were just there, and he wanted them gone, just like anyone would that's dealing with those. He looks at me and says, I don't know, what do I do? And at the time, I did the best thing I knew to do. I found some professional counseling. But looking back, I didn't give him the tools he needed. Looking back, I don't think he was struggling with past trauma. I don't think he was dealing with his mental health. I don't think he was struggling with OCD. I think he was facing continual arrows from the enemy who had occupied pretty close territory in his heart and his life. And I didn't help him. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe some light bulbs have clicked tonight for you. That some of the things you've been walking through, some of the accusations you've been facing in your mind, maybe they're from the enemy. Or maybe the battle just hasn't been going great. 
and the enemy's convinced you to believe a lie that you're fighting a battle you can't win. That's a lie. It's not a battle that you can win. It's a battle that's been won. So as a way to respond tonight, um, we're going to do something that we've done before. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to make anybody stand up or put their hands in the air. But we just have these reflection cards. We're going to sing a song or two, um, and during the first song, you can just take an opportunity to, to fill this out, if that's something that you feel led to do. There's some really personal things you could check off, and then there's some not-so-personal things that you could check off on here. There's two boxes in the back that you'll be able to just pass by quietly on your way to your small group, one for guys, one for gals. Because some of the things are personal on the reflection card, Brian and I are only going to see the guys once. My wife, Hannah, Bianca, they're only going to see the gals once so that we can keep those circles as small as we need to so that we can remain as confidential as we can. And I know we don't always do this, but I'm going to invite Brian and the worship team to come up. And we're going to just finish with two songs tonight. The first uh, is a song of reflection. And I'm going to invite you to do whatever you want during that song. You can pray. Maybe you want to write a commitment down on your handout. Maybe you want to fill out your reflection card. Maybe you just want to think. Or maybe you want to sing. This is, it's a great song to sing. And then we'll finish with a song together uh, of declaring our victory through Christ then I'll come back up and dismiss, dismiss to small groups. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, may we refuse to be ignorant of the designs of our spiritual enemy. And as we take some time to respond to your word tonight, May your spirit work without hindrance in our hearts and in our lives, helping each one of us respond in, in the way that you desire. We've been praying all weekend and we continue to pray that the enemy will lose a decisive battle tonight in our young adult family. And may each of us know and believe that we're fighting a battle not only that we can win, but a battle that's already been won because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And we hold fast to his victory tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.